This week on WealthTrack, The Long View, third-generation investor Christopher Davis explains how the Davis funds have navigated through multiple crises over the last 50 years. You know, the ability to zoom back mm -hmm. and look at that inexorable march of progress, of corporate profits over time, the resiliency, the adaptability of the economy, of individuals, I think that, in a sense, gives you some equanimity. Not to take things lightly, right. but to recognize that there will also be a period where we look back at this time and we put it in the context of that long march of progress. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. The world is going through a terrible experience right now. As President Trump has said, we are at war with an invisible enemy. I would add it's an enemy that can strike anyone, anywhere, which makes it so unsettling. The coronavirus and the steps we are taking to combat it are harsh, isolating, and damaging, psychologically, emotionally, and financially. Everyone is affected. Many Americans are losing their paychecks and jobs for an indeterminate amount of time. Some are in danger of losing their businesses. Bill Gates, who knows a lot about epidemics, was quoted saying the virus shutdowns could last up to 10 weeks. Others fear longer. The cynic's definition of a recession is when your neighbor loses her job. A depression is when you lose your job. As Strategus' economics chief Don Rismiller wrote clients recently, we are now talking about jobless claims making all-time highs, which would likely signal the start of the 2020 recession. With the economy contracting, unemployment rising, and a bear market in progress, what should investors be focused on? Well, this week's guest comes from a family of investors who takes the long view. He is third-generation value investor Christopher Davis, chairman and portfolio manager of Davis Advisors, an independent investment management firm founded by his dad, great investor Shelby M.C. Davis, in 1969. Chris's grandfather, Shelby Cullum Davis, made a fortune investing in insurance companies at a time when they were shunned by Wall Street. To this day, one of Davis's specialties is financial stocks. With $26 billion under management, $2 billion of which belongs to employees and the Davis family, the firm runs several funds, including its flagship New York Venture Fund, managed by Chris since 1997, its no-load version, Selected American Shares, and Davis Financial Fund. The firm also runs four of some of the first actively managed ETFs, including Davis Select U.S. Equity ETF and Davis Select Financial ETF. I asked Chris Davis how the firm has managed through crisis conditions for more than half a century. I think the great gift of having 50 or 60 years of sort of investment perspective passed on is that, that you realize that, you know, a crisis period is an awful, unpleasant part of the landscape, but it's an inevitable part of the landscape. Right. So I think back to my grandfather investing into the teeth of World War II and into Korea, and you know, think of the nuclear threat 
you know, people crawling under their desks and, you know, through presidential assassinations and presidential resignations and stagflation and the hostage crisis, the oil crisis, the SNL crisis, the Russia crisis, <laughs> How do we survive? you know, the tech telecom, Euro right. crisis, financial crisis. They're all part of the landscape. And, you know, the ability to zoom back mm -hmm. and look at that inexorable march of progress, of corporate profits over time, the resiliency, the adaptability of the economy, of individuals, I think that, in a sense, gives you some equanimity. Not to take things lightly, right. but to recognize that there will also be a period where we look back at this time and we put it in the context of that long march of progress. So put what we're going through now in some sort of perspective as far as how you view it. Uh, so, you know, we've got this black swan event called COVID-19, the coronavirus. You know, how do you um, handle something like that? I mean, or, or what do you do with something like that as an investor? Well, the first part of reacting to something like this Right. was understanding whether you were well prepared for it in the first place. And when we invest, when we buy a company, what we say is we know that we are going to own that company in a recession. We're going to own it in a period of time when uh, the dollar might be rising or mm -hmm. falling or interest rates rising or falling. Over a long arc of a 10-year or 20-year holding period, we're going to see lots of unexpected things. So our first question is, is the business durable? durable. Is it resilient? So when you're in a crisis like this, the first thing we do is make sure that we are right on those hypotheses, you know, the resilience, the durability of the portfolio. And then we look at what is the impact of this crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and Consuela, I think this is where really some perspective is valuable. If I was to look over the arc of, of investment history at what this period feels like, mm -hmm. It feels a lot like the world felt after 9-11. Oh, interesting, because everyone else is kind of saying 2008. You're saying 9-11. It's wildly different okay. than 2008. Okay. 2008 was way worse as a systemic issue. 9-11 mm -hmm. was way worse as a psychological impact. I mean, when you think about it, think about the scarring effect. I mean, particularly us as New Yorkers, but right. really nationwide. It changed everybody's view of risk. And mm -hmm. just like now with the one-two punch of oil prices and COVID, then there was a one-two punch of, of the tech telecom bubble bursting and then 9-11. And 9-11 created this truly terror. Right. Right. We didn't know what was next. Nothing like this had ever happened. What did it mean? What was coming next? Everything shut down. Right. No one Fear. felt safe. No. Right. Nobody felt safe. Well, doesn't that really encapsulate mm -hmm. where we are now? Mm -hmm. Nobody feels safe. And yet, in many ways, if you look from 2003, 2004, and look back at 9-11, you can never make light of the horrible loss and mm -hmm. the trauma of that day. But you could also say that one thing that we learned was that we were far safer afterwards. Mm -hmm. In other words, we had been taught an awful lesson about how vulnerable we were, and we created the Department of Homeland Security, and we shored up TSA, and we created terrorism resiliency in cities and so on, right. and created a backdrop for a much safer world after. I think the same thing here. I think what we will look back on three years from now is we'll say, we didn't realize how vulnerable we were to pandemics. Mm -hmm. And now we are far safer. And thank God it wasn't even worse. So the worst is still in front of us and we right. can't make light of that. But I think that when we take that perspective of history and look ahead, we'll look back at this time and say, well, we are safer because we went through that period back then. 
Let's throw in the oil shocks that you just mentioned, yeah. where there seems to be a race to the bottom with Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, you know, basically producing full out. And that's an important part of the U.S. economy now, more important than it used to be oil production, because we're the you know, world's largest oil producer now because of the shale oil technology revolution. So you know, what, what do you do with something like that? Well, of course, we're also big oil consumers. Yes. So low prices have some enormous right. benefits, too. Yes. Um, so it is an unexpected event. I never worry too much about that because ultimately supply and demand work itself out. As we like to say, you know, nothing cures low prices like low prices. Nothing cures high prices like high prices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, low oil prices will ultimately change demand. It, you know, supply will go way, way down. And of course, prices will normalize. What really matters right. is, does the cost of producing that incremental oil barrel, has that really gone down? No. No. So people can produce at a loss for periods of time, and then eventually they fold and go bankrupt, and then there's less oil, less supply, prices go back up. So I would say that's a little bit of a head fake. It's another you know, pin in the, right. in the balloon, so it really hurts at this time. But I would say long run, I don't think there's a lot to worry about in terms of what's the long-term impact to Russia and Saudi Arabia being in this you know, attack. And, and of course, by the way, if they put a, a generation of shale uh, drillers out of business, another generation will reappear when oil's back at 50 right. or 60. And that has just been a history of the, it's been a boom-bust cycle from the beginning exactly. of the industry. So exactly. It's, right. And so that is nothing new, but it comes at a time when already everything is raw and skittish. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had, you know, a long economic expansion. We've had cheap capital around for a long period right. of time. That creates complacency. So, you know, this is going to rattle people, mm -hmm. but this is not shaking the foundations of the system the way the financial crisis was. This is really a, 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 a psychological uh, attack, and it's going to really change people's mindsets. It's good. The fearfulness is the most important element that we're seeing today. And, right. and you know, I will say as long-term investors, if you have resilient businesses, durable businesses, and you can buy them 20% cheaper, 30% mm -hmm. cheaper, 40% cheaper, you're just increasing your future returns. So that's your kind of view now as to what you do in these times of crisis. And this is just, you know, really from the, the, the playbook that a Sir John Templeton would say, you know, I mean, or, or, or the Rothschilds buy when there's blood in the streets. I mean, is that kind of just incremental buying is what you're doing of companies that, that you either own or uh, that you've been looking to own. Yes. Well, Consuelo, I have a, a, a framed uh, picture of my grandfather in my office, and, and it has a quote underneath it, which was one of his favorite sayings. And he said, you make most of your money in a bear market. Mm -hmm. You just don't realize it at the time. And, <laughs> That's perfect. Because uh, it feels terrible. Yeah. And what I would say is, look, you're going to hear people say, you know, with sort of a, a you know, wide-eyed optimism saying, this is the buying opportunity of a lifetime, you know, just buy. That's a dangerous way to okay. think because the world can get worse. So what we would say is it's a time for measured, considered action. And so I would not throw a dartboard at the market. This is a time to be focused on what you're buying. And this is where I think we do see themes emerging that really look attractive in a market like this. Uh, but we think it's a day, you know, if people say, well, just because a stock has gone down a lot, 
doesn't necessarily mean it's a great buy. Right. What really matters is if it's gone down a lot relative to its intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. If its intrinsic value has substantially held up and the price has gotten a lot cheaper, that's a buying opportunity. But many times, you know, we'll see this with some travel-related or levered mm -hmm. companies or some of the oil companies we talk about. The stock has gone down a lot because the business is worth a lot less. Mm -hmm. That is, that's sort of a falling knife situation. And I don't mean a falling knife in terms of, oh, the price could keep going down. I mean the value could keep going mm -hmm. down. That's where people need to be focused. Right. Let me ask you about one development that I know that you are very concerned about that is not, does not seem to be going away very quickly, and that is these record low interest rates. And you know, I've talked about a race to the bottom in oil, but there's a race to the bottom in interest rates as well. And that is the, kind of has shaken, right, the, just the fundamentals of, of how we evaluate investments. Consuelo, you're, so, you're exactly right. That is the unknown unknown. Yes. Is really, we've, nobody has ever operated for a long period of time in a world where capital was free. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 the idea that you could borrow money at no cost, it's, it's, it doesn't really even seem to make sense, right? right? So here we are. We're in a world that's sort of uncharted territory. What does it mean? Well, I would say this. Right. So I think in a world of very low interest rates, owning businesses that have resilient earnings over a long period of time relative to the price you're paying for it, that those businesses should in a way become more valuable and should be repositories of value, right? They that so you know, when I think of businesses like United Technologies and Berkshire Hathaway or U.S. Bank Corp. Mm -hmm. or, you All know, major holdings, long-term mm -hmm. holdings of yours. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, U.S. Bank Corp's been around for 100 or 150 years. I mean, even some companies like Bank America, Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. JP, you know, enormously Bank of New York, 250 years, right? Enormously durable businesses. So mm -hmm. you know they're going to get through this period. They're going to be through this. So what, and if you can buy those businesses and have have them producing as earnings maybe 12 or 13 percent mm -hmm. of their market cap per year in earnings, well, that looks like a hell of an attractive place to be investing if what you get buying a treasury is 20 basis points. Uh, so yeah. I don't know what it means systemically, but I know that the businesses that produce income are far more valuable in a world where other things don't produce income. So the Davis funds, I mean, one of your specialties is financials. And when you look at, you know, zero interest rates, uh, a lot of people are saying, look, the banks can't make any money on their loans. So it's a lousy business to be in. Yet it's a huge segment for the Davis funds. So tell me about, you know, what is it that we're missing about the financials, banks in particular, that you find so attractive as long-term investments? Well, they have two or three characteristics that I think make them so attractive as long-term investments. And we start with durability. Mm -hmm. These are durable business Some models. of them are. Well, <laughs> they, I would say, if I look yeah. at our top 10 bank holdings, I think eight of them are in their second century. Uh -huh. uh, one of them is in its third century. Right. Uh, so, you know, that is, you know, the model of banking has enormous resiliency, enormous. Now, we all had this memory of the financial crisis. Right. Right. And, and you would go back to the depression probably for the next period in where financial, and yet it, it's sort of amazing when mm -hmm. you think about the resiliency of the companies that went through that period. Yes, 
It's absolutely true that, that some didn't make it through mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a once-in-a-generation financial crisis. Right. But, but there's, there was real dirt. Now, if you had the same financial crisis again, they would all make it through. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they have twice the capital they had then. Right. So just like we said about the coronavirus or 9-11, after that shock, the system became far safer mm -hmm. from that risk. Mm -hmm. So the risk of financial crisis has been dramatically reduced, or a banking crisis, banking because, crisis. Bank, yeah, because right. bank capital is so much higher. So you have durable businesses with the highest capital ratios they've ever had, mm -hmm. and capital ratios that would have enabled them to go right through the financial crisis unscathed, as by the way, most of the companies we own did. Right, so I'm, I'm just looking, so when you own Wells Fargo, which actually didn't want to take any aid exactly. from the federal government during the financial crisis. Um, but right, JP Morgan, for instance, I mean, you, you, know, you mentioned um, some others US as well. Bancorp, US Bank Corp, right. uh, PNC, Capital One, right. uh, you know, just, They've, so you, you have durability. You have them as the cheapest sector in the market because people remember the financial crisis. And so they're fighting last year's war, mm -hmm. right? They don't realize they're far safer. So I actually think when we get through this period, people will look back and say, my God, we, we had a recession. We had a crisis. The banks were fine. So durable, cheap, overcapitalized. Uh, you know, that is a great combination, I think. And, you know, and, and allocating capital back to shareholders, paying big dividends, shrinking shares. I think that's a, a big theme. And I think people underestimate that durability and resiliency, and they'll come to really appreciate it after this period. So other big themes that you're investing in as well. You tell us what, what you well, would put next as far as a major theme. I think that, that industrials in global leading industrial companies, because what happens is trade war, uh, recession, mm -hmm. people get scared, they trade these things down. And so if I would call banks cash machines, they're producing so much cash right now relative to their market cap, I would call these compounding machines. Mm -hmm. And, and what, the for instances are the big United Technologies, Technologies, Berkshire Hathaway, uh -huh. uh, uh, Applied Materials. Okay. You know, companies like this, because their sales in any one quarter, two quarter, even four quarters may be lumpy. Mm -hmm. You know, industrial capital spending goes back, they put off buying the new engines or whatever it is. But over three year periods, these have been growth companies for generations, you know, right. and I think that the ability to sort of take a little lumpiness in exchange for a long-term, resilient, durable growth rate, that's fantastic. So the growth characteristics of these companies make them sort of compounding machines. So I would say that's a second big theme. All right. Chris, another theme uh, that, that you had mentioned to me in the past is what you consider to be, what are the blue chips of today? So, so tell us about that and what, what kinds of companies are in that category. Well, in, in a funny way, I would, I would really almost call the theme the blue chips of tomorrow in the sense that what often happens is the blue chips of today are often 10-year-old racehorses, mm -hmm. right? They're companies where people feel safe in them. They hide in them. They, they, they didn't go down a lot in the financial crisis. You know, utilities, real estate, consumer products. Right. You know, people feel safe. These dividend darlings, they're taking a lot of risk in those companies because mm -hmm. in most cases, unlike the banks where the leverage has gone down, the capital ratios have gone up since the, 
These companies have done the opposite. Oh, Since the financial crisis, they have been pouring on debt. Their growth rate has been slowing. Their uh, valuations have gone up. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at things like the S&P Low Volatility Index, mm -hmm. I think the median company has barely grown revenue over the last five years. And I think they've increased debt, net debt, 40 or 50 percent in the last five years. Right. So, so, so those are the blue chips the, of today. The blue chips of today. Okay. But the blue chips of tomorrow, that's where we try to put ourselves out five years and say, where five years from now will people feel those are really the blue chip growth mm -hmm. companies, they're resilient, they're global, the way people used to think of Gillette and Procter and & Gamble and so on. Mm -hmm. There, I think it absolutely brings you out to Silicon Valley. I mean, it. you know, when you look at Google, and uh, no, you, you own Google, you own Amazon, Amazon. you own Facebook. Yeah, we right. do, and and uh, and we still own some Microsoft. Uh -huh. um, you know, I would say what matters is if you're paying a higher valuation for a business as a growth as a value investor. Right. If you're paying a, what really matters is the durability of that growth because growth is a component of value, mm -hmm. right? It a company that grows profitably is more valuable than one that doesn't grow. Right. And so, but the key is you better be right on that growth. And I think there are a lot of companies out there today valued like growth companies that are growth pretenders. The growth has already stopped or has slowed dramatically. Those are the blue chips of today or many of them. The blue chips of tomorrow, tomorrow. are going to be the ones when people say for 20 years, for 25 years, Google has been one of the great global growth engines. Amazon has grown for 30 years. You know, and people will look back and say that those that the value and the resilience and the durability mm -hmm. and the scale of that growth will be very valuable. Again, in a low interest rate world, right? In a world that, you know, only grows at 0 or 1%, right. a business that grows at 10, 12, 14, 15, 18, 20% hugely valuable, but you better be right about the business. So we're very selective mm -hmm. in that area. We only own three or four companies in that area, but we have a lot of conviction about the durability of their franchise. Headline risk. We talked about financials earlier. Wells Fargo is one of your, you know, your largest holdings. Why Wells Fargo and, and why is headline risk a theme as well? Well, you know, they say in investing the, the most important organ isn't the brain, it's the stomach. <laughs> and of course, that's true in the market that we're in today, right? Mm -hmm. It's true of the market as a whole, but it's also true of individual companies. And you so know, you think Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo will be a stronger company and a better company for what they've gone through. And it's by far the cheapest of the big banks, by far. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Actually, the last time you were on, which was too long ago, in 2017, it was Capital One. Ah. So what would you have us own some of today? <laughs> I have bought a lot of Capital One in this recent period. Uh -huh. I love that company. I love that it's one of the largest banks in America that's still run by the founder. Founder, right. I think Rich Fairbanks is one of the most underrated entrepreneurs uh, in any industry mm -hmm. for what he created there. I think he's visionary about where Capital One could be. It was always sort of a non-bank bank, a little like Progressive was in insurance. Mm -hmm. So I do love that one, and it is among the cheapest of all of the banks, and I think right. among the best run. However, given the panic out there, mm -hmm. I feel like what people need is something where they feel like, well, no matter what happens, I can sleep at night. Right. And not only that, this company may even get more valuable mm -hmm. in this period. And that's certainly Berkshire. Berkshire. That cash cushion is now, this is, if you could write a script for Warren Buffett, right. you would want a, mar a world where 
assets have gone on sale mm -hmm. and where the value of his liquidity and his cash all of a sudden goes through the roof. That's the sort of world we are in now. And right. I wouldn't be surprised to see before this is all done, a mega deal come out of Omaha. Mm -hmm. Do you know something? I definitely do not know anything. Uh, I think my investment results approve. I maybe maybe I don't know anything, but uh, uh, but I okay, think it's you one know, where but you know Warren Buffett really well and Charlie Munger, yeah. and therefore you know what they're doing or certainly contemplating at a time like this. There's no management team better right. prepared psychologically. There's no proven record that's better, and there's no bigger pile of cash willing to start uh, moving out into a distressed world right. in Berkshire Hathaway. So in a panicked world, I think that's one where people can put it in their kids' trusts uh, uh, and not lose any sleep. Mm -hmm. Chris Davis, always a delight to have you on WealthTrack. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Consuelo. I love to be here. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is know your risk tolerance as an investor. Intelligent investor columnist Jason Zweig wrote a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal recently titled, What Benjamin Graham Would Tell You to Do Now, Look in the Mirror. The advice was to understand your own risk tolerance, which is always put to the test during market turmoil. Are you an investor or a speculator? What's the difference? As Weig reports, according to Graham, an investor's primary interest lies in acquiring and holding suitable securities at suitable prices. A speculator cares mainly about anticipating and profiting from market fluctuations. If you're an investor, price fluctuations have only one significant meaning, an opportunity to buy wisely when prices fall sharply and to sell wisely when they advance a great deal. Well, prices have certainly fallen sharply. Until we see a decline in coronavirus cases here in the U.S. and Europe, chances are they will fall some more. Should you sell, ride it out, or nibble as prices fall? Look in the mirror. What is your tolerance for more downside risk? And decide. Well, next week, an ETF and cryptocurrency review with Matt Hogan, an expert in both popular markets. In this week's Extra Feature, Chris Davis gives us two book recommendations to increase our wisdom and perspective during this challenging period. Please continue to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and a productive one.